My name is Liam Curran. I'm a researcher in law based at the Helix Centre for Health, Law and Emerging Technologies at the University of Oxford. Uh, I'm here today to talk about what researchers should know about confidentiality and privacy, uh, an interesting area of which I'll only be giving a very brief overview, but hopefully uh, one that makes sense. Before I go into any more detail about what confidentiality and privacy are in terms of their legal basis, I should really just say that the focus of this talk is on information, and in particular, private and confidential information, but information that identifies somebody. Uh, so not anonymous data, not anonymous sort of points on a graph as such, but how should researchers treat information that will, on the face of it, identify one person or maybe more than one person. So in the context of research, in particular science, and particularly scientific research, there's a variety of different informations. There's written medical records, there are um, the information contained within biological samples, within biological images, uh, and many other things. I'll start with a, with a quote from a case that was heard in the House of Lords in 2004. This was actually the Naomi Campbell uh, litigation to do with um, private information and paparazzi, things like this. Nonetheless, it's, it has relevance to my talk, uh, and this is from Baroness Hale. It has always been accepted that information about a person's health and treatment for ill health is both private and confidential. This stems not only from the confidentiality of the doctor-patient relationship, but from the nature of the information itself. So, the nature of the information is, is the first thing I'll dwell upon. And as I've said, what I'm really concerned about is identifiability, and how this identifiability creates obligations on, in this context, researchers, scientists, and what those obligations are. Typically, a scientist will say, well, look, I get information from real live people, lots of people, and in, the, in, in the course of my research, but what I do is I anonymize it. I strip it of all identifying features, and it does become a point on the graph. And that's fine, because the law isn't there to stop research, legitimate research being done. All it is there to do, really, is put in place safeguards that protect the information that relates to other people. Why I mention anonymization is because there has been some concern in a variety of contexts recently that the standard procedures for anonymizing data are open to some form of risk. But basically, saying the, the anonymization isn't as robust as people may have thought it had been previously. In the context of genomics, um, there was a paper by Homer uh, et al. in 2008 saying that from anonymous, well, uh, previously thought of anonymous genomic data, we could actually pick out uh, individuals. We could show that this was a rela relates to specific individuals. Not to the extent of naming them, but, but to actually sort of say, this is someone and this is someone else. Uh, and put together with other information that may be in the hands of researchers, we're, we're getting into the stage where the information isn't really anonymous. It is identifiable to some extent. Also, the, the algorithms that are used in, um, in sort of computer security uh, in environments, they're also at risk. Uh, um, if you read a paper by Paul Ohm called Broken Promises of Privacy, Responding to the Surprising Failure of Anonymization, this is a paper released uh, in 2009, it's just really just saying, look, don't have absolute faith in the, in the ways in which people anonymize uh, data. There could be some risk. It may not be a massive risk, but should this cause scientists involved in research to stop and think a little bit more? There's another great quote here. Uh, this is from Lundshoff et al. Uh, in a paper in Nature Reviews Genetics in 2008. It says, the guarantee of absolute privacy and confidentiality is not a promise that medical and scientific researchers can deliver any longer. 
And I think on, on a broad level, that's, that's fine. I mean, I, I'm here speaking to you as a lawyer, and I would say that you know, if you're going to promise something, you have to be absolutely sure that you can deliver. You know, so if you're going to say this is 100% robust, anonymized, you have to believe in it. If there's risk, you just have to tell people what the risk is. And that's really what the law is about. Um, so the two areas of law, confidentiality and privacy, and by privacy I, I really do mean the laws of data protection, they're there to say, look, where there is risk that the information identifies a person, explain the risk, take a sort of common sense approach, and um, make sure that you're as transparent as possible with the individuals concerned. So it's probably not the case that all information is identifiable, but the question uh, one can ask is to what extent should the obligations of privacy and confidentiality affect the use of potentially identifiable information in scientific research. So with that in mind, let's just skim over the basics of uh, the law of confidence and the law of privacy and data protection. I mean, confidential information, for one, can arise in a variety of situations. It can arise in the very sort of commercial, trade secrets uh, side of things. It can also arise in the more personal, let's say, uh, context of, of medical information or the you know, doctor-patient relationship is one that is, has an inherent, inherent confidentiality built in. So there's a sort of three-step test that one can do to see if there's a relationship of uh, confidence between uh, the, the relevant people. Look at the information to begin with. Um, is there the necessary quality of confidence? If the information is just trite, it is, you know, what I had for breakfast this morning, if it is something simple and uncontroversial and clearly on the face of it not particularly special, then it's going to be very difficult to argue that it has the necessary quality of confidence. The second um, step is to look at the relationship. You know, so the person disclosing this information on the assumption that it is something with a necessary quality of confidence, does the relationship between the disclosee and the disclosor really put in place an obligation of confidence? If I tell my doctor something, there's an automatic assumption that there's, there's a duty of confidence there to, you know, to at least some extent. If I tell uh, a man on the bus what I've had for breakfast this morning by way of polite conversation, then you know, arguably there isn't. The third stage then uh, is really to think about, okay, if you have got the obligation, uh, sorry, rather if you have got the quality and there is that uh, obligation by way of the relationship, um, if you're trying to identify a breach, the third step is to say, well, what is the unauthorised use? Because you, know, you can disclose the information and say, that's confidential, please keep it amongst uh, me and you or amongst a specific group of people. But as soon as you go beyond that, and do something with the information that you are not authorised to do, then there's the breach of confidence. And that's where the action arises in law. I told someone something in confidence, they went and did something that I wanted them not to do, therefore I, ha I can uh, take action against them. I have a legal right because they have breached my confidence, you know, breached confidentiality. Now, in the, in the context of research, there are specific exceptions. If we look at the uh, NHS Act, the 2006 NHS Act, uh, Section 251, it does allow access uh, to confidential patient information for the purposes of research. I won't go into detail about that, but that's, that's something that says, OK, yes, we understand there is the law of confidence and it will arise in certain situations, but so as to promote research, uh, we will allow patient information, so information that identifies a patient, to be used for, for research purposes. Moving on to privacy and uh, data protection. Um, data protection gets a very bad press, uh, and that's largely because the Act, the Data Protection Act, which is the UK Act, 
is, a, is very, very badly put together. It's a very sort of common sense based, principles based piece of legislation. However, it is very badly drafted, unfortunately. What it's really all about is saying, okay, there's this data out there, data which can identify a person. Uh, I'll go into a little bit more detail on that. But um, we want to say that the people using that data, what's referred to as the data controllers, who could be a company that sends you marketing, it could be a researcher doing research, it could be, uh, it could be your doctor, uh, has to treat this type of information because it is a special type of information with appropriate safeguards. It does stem from a sort of human rights base in that uh, Article 8 of the European Convention on Human Rights uh, sets out a right to a private life. Uh, it's a sort of two-stage article. It says, um, everyone has the right to respect for his private and family life, his home and his correspondence. And then the, the second sort of qualifying part of the article says, there shall be no interference by public authority with this right, um, I'm paraphrasing now, uh, except in accordance with and then it, there's quite a long list, uh, but things that are in accordance with the law, necessary in a democratic society, things to do with national security or public safety, the economic well-being of a country, things to do with protect, protecting uh, people from crime or protecting health and morals. I mean, it, th there's quite a long list. But nonetheless, this human rights basis for data protection law is, is you know, it's there. And uh, there's a great quote from a European Court of Human Rights case, uh, Zed and Finland, in 1997, which reads, uh, The protection of personal data, not least medical data, is of fundamental importance to a person's enjoyment of his or her right to respect for private and family life, as guaranteed by Article 8. The domestic law must therefore afford uh, appropriate safeguards to prevent any such communication or disclosure of personal health data as may be inconsistent with the guarantees of Article 8. So, okay, we've got Article 8. We know it applies to personal data. Uh, so how does data protection link in? Well, data protection, big aims, uh, coming from the European Directive, from which certainly the uh, UK Act uh, derives, says protection of fundamental rights and freedoms, by which they mean, essentially, privacy, the Article 8 right, is, is one aim. The second aim is to also ensure the free movement of personal data throughout Europe. So what is personal data? Well, it's, it's data and I'll now paraphrase from the Data Protection Act, which relate to a living individual who can be identified either from those data or from those data and other information which is in the possession of, or likely to come into the possession of, the data controller. And again, that's the person doing something with the data that relates to someone else. So, so what does data protection do? What, do? what does it do in terms of obligations it imposes upon these data controllers? And particularly, what does it do to researchers? So, okay, if researchers are doing something with personal data, uh, which, you know, entirely legitimate purposes, uh, what they have to do is be fair, be lawful, be transparent. And I'll talk about some exceptions at the moment, but uh, in a moment. But the general things is that they should only use personal data that they need and no more than that. They should try and maintain accuracy in this data. They should uh, put in place adequate security to this data, uh, to protect this data uh, from unauthorised access. And they should just, you know, uh, respect the rights of individuals, um, the rights that these individuals have under the Act. I mean, it's essentially an Act saying, put in place some transparency wherever possible. Tell people if you have their information, their personal data. Tell people what you're doing with it. You know, make it clear what you're not doing with it. And uh, just try and be as open as possible where that's reasonable. 
so the rights that individuals have, data subjects as they're known under the Act, are quite limited under the Act actually. I mean, all they can do is um, find out about what people are doing with their personal information. So they can put in a request and say, I am Joe Bloggs, what are you doing with it, personal data about me? And they can put that into anyone. And assuming it's not a sort of vexatious or sort of far-fetched request, data controllers are obliged under law to say, I have this amount of data on you which I use for these purposes. Data subjects also have rights such that any inaccuracies can be resolved in their data. They can say, OK, look, you've got that data about me, but actually it's not accurate anymore. You know, uh, I am 21 years old, I'm not whatever dates you might have for my date of birth. They also have a limited right, actually, to object to processing which is particularly harmful or is likely to cause them some form of distress. What they certainly don't have, and what a lot of policy is talking about, certainly in the UK at the moment, is, is, is something akin to a right of ownership. Personal data that relates to me, because it relates to me, must be mine, and I must have some form of property right in it. That's not a right that's recognised in law at all. It's not present in the Data Protection Act. Certainly not at the moment. Uh, there's reform uh, looming, uh, certainly at a European level, in fact, which will trickle down into the UK, but there's no right of property in one's personal data. So with, with this sort of common sense principles-based piece of legislation, uh, legislation uh, in place, what, what, what does that do to researchers? Well, the Data Protection Act isn't there to serve as a barrier for, to legitimate research in any form, uh, in, in, in the context of scientific research, it applies equally. Um, so the, these principles, there are eight principles in the Data Protection Act. If you are doing research with personal data, you're exempted from three of them. So whereas most data controllers will have to only keep and use personal data for as long as they need it, if you're using personal data for research purposes, you can actually retain it indefinitely whereas most data controllers can only use personal data for specific purposes, purposes which really should be communicated to the uh, data subject because of this push to be transparent and fair. Researchers can use personal data, even if it wasn't collected for research purposes, they can use it for research, which of course strikes up a fundamental clash with consent forms. Because, you know, what's a consent form doing? It's, it's getting consent to use personal data for research. And that's fine. I mean, that's, that's, that's over and above what the Data Protection Act asks for. I mean, it's, there are obviously other considerations that mean that having a consent form is a good thing, uh, if it's a well-drafted consent form. But, you know, you, you don't need consent um, of a data subject to use personal data because of the way the Data Protection Act sets out this exemption. And it, uh, what it also does, actually, is it, is it limits this right of access that data subjects have. Whereas I can send a letter to a supermarket and say, I think I had a loyalty card with you once. My name is Joe Bloggs. What information do you have on me? Whereas the supermarket is obliged to reply if I meet all the relevant requirements of my request. A researcher doesn't have that obligation. So, you know, the law is not there to stop the researchers doing their research. The research exemption won't apply if, um, if the personal data in the, in the course of the research or the processing done by the researcher is somehow used to support measures or decisions with respect to the individuals, the data subjects, which basically means somehow what the research does is going to have an effect on that person, probably by way of direct communication. So, and this, this has obviously big impacts on, uh, on feedback 
of results to patients. So it's arguable that as soon as you recontact someone and say, we did some research and it looks like this is relevant to you, then is, you know, it's arguable that is that not arguing against uh, or destroying rather the research exemption in that case. Uh, the other consideration which will prevent the exemption coming into play is that the processing, the use of the personal data, causes substantial uh, damage or distress or is at least likely to cause that substantial damage or distress to the individuals, which is fine because obviously you know, legitimate research shouldn't be doing damage to, uh, to people. But you know, researchers still should bear in mind that some of the principles are not uh, exempted. They still need to process data, use it in research. They need to do that in a fair and lawful way. And these are very general terms, I know, but it's common sense as to what that means. So they shouldn't do anything dubious, really, with the data. They do have an obligation where it's not involving a sort of disproportionate amount of effort to let people know, let the data subjects know what they're doing with the personal data. Now, disproportionate effort is, is really the key here. You know, if, if you get hold of a massive data set and you use it for legitimate research purposes, it will involve huge amounts of effort to sort of track down each individual that, that each um, piece of data relates to. So that is is not something that's... I don't think researchers have to worry about particularly. If, if they know that they're getting research from... Uh, it goes back to consent forms again. The more clear and open you can be about one use of the data and then potential secondary uses of the data, the better. Because if people understand that it's not just going to be data that's used once and it might be used in other research projects further down the line, then that's better for the individual. So I suppose my um, take-home message is that... Um, Think about data. Think about how robust your anonymization is of, of data that relates to people. If there's any potential risk that it's not as anonymous as you might think, then don't hide that. Be as open as you can with people and say, look, we are taking what we consider to be very reasonable steps to protect this information because it is personal data. We, we have adequate security. We try to anonymize things to the best of our ability. Just be, just be fair and open about that. The Data Protection Act isn't there to stop research going on. All it does is just keep in place some safeguards. You're actually afforded as a researcher quite a few exemptions, but it's just there as a minimum standard of compliance. So just think about it. Just, just, just employ some form of common sense and have the security be as clear as possible. And uh, I hope that that's reassuring in some way to researchers. This is... It will obviously always turn on the specific type of research you're doing and what the data is. But just be aware that the Data Protection Act may apply. Get some proper advice on it, but don't be overly concerned that it's going to prevent you from doing your research.